Today, I'm pleased to welcome Steve Soretsky, a real estate aficionado and a Vancouver-based realtor. Steve is an avid student of macroeconomics and credit cycles. Um, he's also the author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs called the Soretsky Report. He hosts his own podcast show and is in all your favorite uh, social media channels, including 30,000 subscribers on YouTube and 42,000 followers on Twitter. You can also find Steve making regular appearances, not only on Coastal Front, uh, but of course on uh, BNN Bloomberg, CBC and Breakfast Television. Steve's dedication to stats, policies, and the financial landscape has allowed him to build a very successful business, and he's ranked as one of the top 1% realtors in Greater Vancouver. He also provides services to investment advisors, financial institutions, policymakers, and real estate developers. In addition, he claims to be a washed-up hockey player, just like me, and a coffee connoisseur. On today's show, we will be diving into Vancouver's current housing situation, talking about policy, and let Steve give us his expert opinion on where he thinks things are headed next. Steve, thanks for being at Coastal Front today. Yeah, that's quite the intro. That's uh, hard to top. I'm, uh, <laughs> a lot well, of pressure now. Well, th thanks for coming in. Let's dive right into it. We talked about this earlier in the week before we, when we did our podcast, pre-podcast uh, call, that new listings in Canada have hit a 20-year low, as well as Vancouver is now seeing a, uh, a pretty big rise in uh, vacancies amongst um, amongst uh, office real estate. I don't know if we want to talk about that, but let's go to that this amazing stat, 20-year low across Canada as far as listings are available. Can you tell us, uh, paint a picture for us, why is that happening right now? And what does that mean for the real estate market? Yeah, it's... Um... It's interesting when you really unpack it because coming into 2023, you know, the narrative was interest rates to have gone up. You know, the Bank of Canada has raised rates over 400 basis points in less than a year. Mortgage rates go from two to five. Uh, surely there's going to be a lot of financial stress, households that are highly levered in Canada. We're going to see a lot of listings coming to market. Uh, foreclosures are going to increase and we're going to have an oversupply of listings and inventory, which is going to lead to a sharp price correction. That was kind of the narrative. And I think logically it makes sense. Uh, and so far to start the year nationally, you're right. Across the country, you have a 20-year low in uh, new listings hitting the MLS system. Uh, here in Greater Vancouver, where I operate, uh, you had a 23-year low, uh, wow. not only for the month of uh, February, but for March as well. We just got that data that came out. So um, I think the biggest thing that we're seeing is there's a couple reasons, I think, um, just you know, conversing with clients. Uh, first of all, in order to list your property, you typically want to know where you're going to go. And so if there's nothing to buy, you're typically saying, well, why would I list my house? Where am I going to go? Okay. So that's number one. I think number two, the volatility in markets. Um, it's been a relatively soft market over the last nine, 10 months. And homeowners are going, well, I don't like the price that I'm going to get for my place. I think that's an element of it. I think that you can you can continue to unpack it. I think there's an element that it is tough for some people to move up because the reality is, is you're getting stress tested on your mortgage rate at 7%, which reduces your ability to borrow money. Um, and so I think all these factors are playing a part. And so, you know, if you kind of unpack it, you have in Canada, you typically, if you have a fixed rate mortgage, you typically have 120 days to port it to a new property. So you got to find a property, close on it within 120 days. And so when there's very low inventory on the market, you're going, okay, well, if I 
sell my property right now and I have nowhere to go, I basically have two or three months to find a place and then I got another 30 days to then close on it to be able to port my mortgage of 1.9%. Otherwise, I lose that rate and I got to sign on the whole term right. at, you know, 48 4.9%. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an I think all of the above, I think, are contributing right now to this the lack of listings coming to market. Okay. I've had an observation over my 25-year career in the professional world, but also growing up with a dad who did what you do today. Like my dad was a realtor. My grandfather and my uncle also owned, a, I don't know if you remember the brand Block Brothers from years ago, but they owned a couple of Block Brother branches on Vancouver Island. And uh, of course, we've gone through many economic cycles in BC and particular one I remember as a kid was uh, the sort of economic downturn of the early 80s. Um, and you went from, you know, a very high inflation environment, far higher than we're at right now, but it's sort of a very similar spin to what we're seeing. Um, and my observation has been that when you have a major real estate correction about to happen, typically what happens at the very beginning is you get a big peak, right? And, and this happens in the stock market as well. So you've got markets bumping along and then, and then it has this like this big rise up in, in pricing. And then there's a, it's sort of, it, it sort of peaks. And what happens on volumes is they start to drop right away. And that's kind of like your first sign. And the reason they drop is because you've got sellers that are up here and buyers are going, no, I'm not going to pay that anymore. I'm going to wait. Now they may be because they see prices coming down, maybe because they can't afford because interest rates have gone up in that context. And so you have this like gap between where sellers are feeling they should be and where buyers feel they should be. And so then it's just a matter of a test of time, right? Like who's going to capitulate first? And typically people need to sell more desperately than they need to buy. That's general rule of thumb. I mean, people tend to be able to, you know, um, wait wherever they're at. If they need to upgrade, they can wait a little longer. But people who need to sell for divorce, estate, you know, if someone passes away, like you're not going to keep grandma's house unoccupied, especially with these, you know, un these uh, empty homes taxes and whatnot. And so it's all, all you need is a matter of a little bit of time and a few people to capitulate, and then you get a lower price reference, and then that starts to kick in. And now all of a sudden, there's a reset on valuations, and people start to go, and as time goes by, people start going, okay, three months ago, yeah, I could accept the fact that my house, maybe was gonna, I was going to wait and see if my house price could go back up, but now it's been six months. Now it's been nine months. I don't think my price value is going back up. I think we hit the peak. It's time to sell now. And then what you have is a flooding of people coming in. And that's why I almost wonder, we're getting into the spring right now. And I almost wonder coming into the summer of 2023, if we may see a flood of inventory come in the market. You also just generally speaking, when you have pendulums move from one end of the, of the spectrum, they always sort of swing back. So if we're at 23 year lows of inventory, I kind of question, well, maybe we're going to be heading towards 23 year highs of inventory by the summertime. If especially right now with rates settling out where they're at, like no one's expecting rates to be cut, but also no one's expecting rates to go higher. So a lot of potential buyers who are going to enter in the market or kind of wondering about what they're going to do with their mortgages, they're going to go, well, the rates aren't moving. So I have to accept where we are now for the foreseeable future. So what are your thoughts on some of those comments? I mean, I think you're, I think you're correct. I mean, I think that, you know, real estate is historically very sticky. Um, you know, yeah, the bid ask spread can kind of blow out. Right. Um, yeah. I think we saw, we definitely saw some of that, I think in the early days, uh, you know, especially last summer, uh, the sentiment was bad. Bank of Canada was raising rates, hundred basis points at a time. Um, sellers 
sellers were simply too high. Buyers were throwing low balls out there and trying to get that price down. Where we saw, um, you know, some of the sellers, I suppose, capitulating was in a lot of like estate sales, people that needed to sell. Uh, right. Again, could be divorces, relocations. Uh, and so we saw those houses basically clear and, and they obviously cleared at lower prices. I think, you know, peak to trough. You could see twenty percent discounts in in suburban markets yeah. uh, in a span of really three, four, five, six months. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty sharp correction. Um, right now, yeah, you've got this issue right now where you've got incredibly tight inventory, and so to me, but I, I think it could be, you know, operating in the market back. We saw this at most. I guess the most recent time was in uh, twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. So the the market had this sort of blow off top in twenty sixteen here. And we had sellers that kind of retested the market in 2017 because they couldn't get their price in 27 or in 2016. They couldn't. They tried again in 2017, and uh, you know, the market had a slight resurgence into 2017 and said, "Okay, maybe that's the worst." And then in 2018, it continued to sort of roll over. Uh, but we did see a lot of houses that they would try in 16, they didn't get their price. They tried again in 17, didn't quite get their price. They tried again in 18, didn't quite get the price. They changed the realtor towards the end of 2018, and they finally sold it pretty much at the lows. Right. But it was really like a two and a half year process for some of these people to really accept the price discovery in the market. Yeah. So I think there's, that's definitely a possible route that we could go. We, we need more inventory. I agree to your point. It's not natural to have a 23-year low in listings. So yeah. at some point, you're going to have these people testing the market. It's just a matter of when and how much. Uh, you know, I, we've been saying to a lot of our clients, like, I don't have a crystal ball of where we're going to be 12 months from now. All I can say is in the next two to three months, you're, you, we have inventory levels that are the lowest standing inventory. It's not now we're, we're talking not just about new listing, but standing inventory. Standing inventory levels as of the end of March are the lowest we have on record going back to 2004. It's incredible. Which, you know, you start adjusting for population, the growth in the, in the, in the housing stock since 2004. So between now and the next two, three months, not not a whole lot's going to change because you're going to you need inventory to go from record lows to basically even healthy balance levels to start to, getting some normalization. Right. And then it's going to take time. Like basically you have to have a period of listings outpacing sales in order to build those inventory levels. That's a good point. To a point where then you get sellers that have to basically start reducing pricing. Yeah. And yeah. so right now sellers surprisingly are in the driver's seat just because of this lack of of new listings coming to market. So I would say, you know, there's talk in the media, uh, and it's true. We're seeing the multiple offers. We're seeing some bidding wars coming back. We're seeing sellers setting offer dates. It's not because you have this like insatiable demand where people are like, I got to get into the housing market. Like we saw during the pandemic, we saw during 2015, 2016. Yeah. It's just, there's literally no inventory. No inventory. And the people that need to transact, AKA young families. Yeah. They have a, you know, they have a kid, their wife's pregnant with another one. Yeah. They, they have to upsize. Right. Yeah. There is truth to the, that, that there's a, there's a, there's a certain segment of the buying population that also have to buy. They have to, or upgrade or expand in size. Come in here yeah. for a job. They have to expand. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, parents are, or parents are, you know, getting so old that you know, yeah. they, they need to get rid of the stairs and, and downside. So yeah. there's, there are, there are elements that of, of people that need to transact. And unfortunately they're transacting at a time when there's no inventory. Yeah. And so you're, are you, are you seeing people sitting on real estate uh, that maybe they were intending to develop or something and they're going, Hey, you know what? 
like no inventory. I'm just going to put a, a high offer out there and just like, just put a, put a, put a price out there and see if someone takes it. In terms of like potentially someone who's owning uh, a rental property that they were going to hold on to, but they're looking at the price. They maybe held it for the last five years and like, wow, there's no inventory. I might as well see if like what I can get for this place. Are you seeing that kind of activity? I literally had one, uh, this month. Okay. Um, and are they, are, and I'm talking about not just putting it for sale, but putting out a price that's kind of like, Hey, you know what? If there's so little inventory, if someone's willing to pay me this premium, I'll sell it. Otherwise I'll just keep it. But they're like, they're not looking to like, they're not desperate to sell. They're more like testing the market yeah. just because there's nothing else available. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you a story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it past client calls me up, says, Hey, you know, I've got this one bedroom condo in Vancouver. Um, can you can run the valuation uh, and and help me sell it? So uh, you know, I said, hey, I think you should probably list this thing. I think it's worth five fifty, five sixty. I think you should list it at five fifty nine, maybe on the high side five sixty nine. Uh, he says, okay, well, no, I actually want to go on at five ninety nine, and if I don't get basically at that price, I will rent it out. And I said, I I literally said to him, I says, there's no comparable in the building that suggests that, and the market isn't. In my opinion wasn't that strong um so i actually politely turned down the listing which is something i rarely do uh but he says you know like please work with me past client like so anyways we came to an agreement i said okay listen we'll give it a couple of weeks if you get what you get so we ended up listing it at his price and going into multiple offers selling above the asking price you got to be kidding me yeah sold above the asking above the and i i and, and then i you know i actually end up looking like the idiot because i'm saying I, oh. I i said i wasn't even going to list this you're, <laughs> i think you're out to lunch but like there's literally nothing available and so i think it's hard to figure out price discovery right now yeah uh, so it's a very funny market we yeah. went from like nothing moving to all of a sudden if you have a listing you're the only one on the block yeah and people are paying i think quite elevated prices considering that mortgage rates are still at 5%. Right. You know, you've got talks yeah. about a looming recession. You've got some banking issues in the U.S. So you've got all these like macro headwinds. Yeah. But people are seemingly unfocused on that right now and just saying, I got to buy a property. Yeah. Yeah. It's so incredible. It's, 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 yeah, it's very, very fascinating. Yeah, that is. That is. Look, there's several factors that come affect uh, real estate prices from you know, population growth, which kind of applies to the demand side of the equation, cost of capital, uh, which really affects supply side. I mean, of course, things like ownership laws, these latest rules we have around, you know, being able to um, automatically convert a single family uh, home into a fourplex, uh, in introducing house flipping taxes, like there's a lot of factors. But they all kind of like end up leaning towards supply and demand, right? Like, and and that's I'm 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 a very much a free market economist uh, type. I'm favor of free market sort of enterprise solutions. And my view is like if we have a housing sort of uh, affordability issue, I think the easiest solution is just create more supply. It'll bring prices down. Um, do you have an opinion on that kind of very simplistic view of like there's demand, create more supply, prices come down? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, I think that, you know, first and foremost, we, if we look at what we've done over the last five years, you've brought in uh, 
empty homes tax, a BC speculation tax. You've increased the property transfer tax. You created a school luxury tax. Uh, you created a foreign buyer tax. You then actually increased the foreign buyer tax. Uh, then you brought in a mortgage stress test. Then you brought in a foreign buyer ban. And housing hasn't got any more affordable right. despite all that. Yeah. So it's it's actually quite fascinating. Uh, I think the biggest issues... Uh, you know, or reasons I think for higher prices is a the you know the financialization of housing. You know, you drop interest rates to zero yeah. for a decade, uh, and you open up the floodgates to a lot of foreign capital coming yeah. into the market. Um, I would argue two decades actually. We've had like yeah. the generally sp- trending twenty years worth of declining cost of capital. Exactly, and yeah. then you have the. It's been really a 30-year bull market in housing. It has been. It's amazing. And every every time that housing gets tested, the government seemingly steps in to support it. Yeah. And I think it's actually created a lot of uh, bad behavior. Yeah. Uh, it's it's basically allowed people to, to believe that housing can never go down. And so you create this like speculative yeah. – it feeds on itself. Yeah. Right? I mean, you remember – Steve, if you if just sort to interrupt for a sec, but if you look at some of those things you've just implemented, or you just talked about like speculation tax, uh, foreign home buyer tax, foreign home buyer ban, these all just all those do is address the demand side. Right. They're trying to like minimize demand, but like we have simple population growth through like immigration and 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 candidly like urbanization of our society. I mean, like just globally. People are leaving small communities, rural environments, and coming to cities. I mean, you don't really hear people talking about home affordability in like my hometown of Port Alberni, yeah. right? Yeah. Or in like you know, in I don't know, like in in my my wife's family's from Williams Lake. Like you never hear anybody going, "Oh, housing is just way too unaffordable in those towns." Right? You live in those towns, you either have a gainfully paid job at the mill, and then you can buy a house. I don't think you hear those people complain about it. It's here in Metro Vancouver. It's in places like Toronto and Calgary, like Metro Vancouver in particular, and even more so in Vancouver proper, because there's a lot of people, as David, as uh, Bob Rennie had pointed out, this idea that you have the right to be able to buy a you know white picket fence sort of single family home in Vancouver. I mean, like that's not an option for everybody anymore. Like you know, if you go to Paris or London or Tokyo, those aren't options anymore. They were gone like 300, 400 years ago, right? So when I look at this, I just go back to like this. The supply side to me, which I think has been a fail of, of mostly municipal government, and that's what David Eby's trying to fix here with this idea of being able to just like force these municipalities to start approving projects. I mean, I think that's been the biggest problem in Vancouver is that developers haven't been able to build as quickly as they'd like to. And it's not like they don't have the capital or the desire. It's just like you go to City Hall to get approval for a project, it takes forever. And then there's that, that all gets added into the cost of the home. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's, I think it's entirely true. Um, I think that the, the bureaucracy to try to get a permit approved, that the length that that takes, those are just holding costs that the developer has to accrue. And then the, ultimately the taxes, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I was chatting with a developer the other day to build purpose built rental buildings here, it's about 25% of the cost is taxes. So that ultimately <laughs> that ultimately has to feed through into your pro forma, yeah, and and what you can actually build. And so, yeah, I think that yeah, unfortunately, I do think government is certainly to blame. Uh, I think that they do need to step back. I think David Eby's policy. I'm sure we can get into that, but 
I actually think it's grossly needed. I think. Well, let's get into it. That's actually my very next question, which is I think the one we're talking about here is this idea of having a province-wide zoning change to allow any single family residence to have an immediate approval to do turn it into a four unit single family lot. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And you you support this concept? Yeah, I do. I think regardless of what your politics are with David Eby, love him, hate him, uh, I think he is trying to leave his mark. Um, and I think that the one thing I see, you know, as a realtor day to day with clientele is you've got this millennial base that is now growing up. They're starting to have families. And the biggest issue I see is most families are stuck with two choices. They can either go into a two-bedroom condo or they end up into a detached house. There doesn't seem to be a lot of that missing middle product. There's not a lot of duplexes. We're starting to build them. There's not really a lot of townhouses. And so you're stuck with the choice of, okay, I can either raise a family in a two-bedroom condo, which can be quite uncomfortable. It's not what we're used to in North America. Or you go to the detached house. With the detached house in the city of Vancouver, you're starting, you know, your starting point on the east side is about one eight for something decent. Yeah, sure. For something livable. Or you gonna... go way out to like almost uh, Chilliwack. I mean, you gotta yeah, go, you got to like go far east, out. At least Langley for sure. I mean, even Langley, you're talking for a very modest detached house. You're talking one point four million. Right. So it doesn't really get a whole lot cheaper. So yeah. we do have this missing middle issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, I believe the stat is close to 50% of the residential land in the city of Vancouver is actually zoned for single family, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you say your starting point just for the piece of dirt. I sure. give you the piece of dirt for, for you know, it's $1.7 million just yeah. for the dirt. And that's pretty, it's a, basically a tear down house. So that's not affordable for a lot of people. So um, I think we do need a lot more of this density. Now, I know a lot of people that have had a single family house, you've lived on the West side, you've been there for 30 years, you probably don't want a bunch of, you know, triplexes going up next to you. But I think the reality is, is if you want to keep young families and have people having children, yeah, um, you know, you think you start to wonder why people in Vancouver don't have kids anymore. It's, yeah. yeah. If you don't have housing to, to, to grow a family, I mean, it's going to discourage you from, from obviously having a family. Yeah, sure. Well, if you were to put on your um, your critical hat, though, and say, okay, well, let's be devil's advocate, because anytime government tends to throw um, sweeping policy like this, where it's just like carte blanche, it's, it doesn't matter where your single family home is, you got an immediate opportunity to convert it to a fourplex um, with no with like no hold holdbacks from the municipal government. Um, there's got to be some impact to that right like there's always unintended consequences do you have any thoughts on what those might be i mean in the very near term it's, it's a land left for the you know so people that are sitting on single family homes your your land value is going to increase yeah as the density increases there's no doubt about that i think over a long enough period let's call it five to seven years i think the young families are actually going to benefit from this policy yeah because i think you will get quite a bit of construction out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a policy and New Zealand was the first to launch it. If you look at a lot of their data, you can see that, uh, building units under construction has mooned. Right. Uh, it's, it's, and then it is bringing pricing down. Mm -hmm. It's bringing rents down as well. Um, and so I think it's going to take some time, but I think that, uh, like I said, in the near term, it's going to benefit the landholders and over the long five to seven years, uh, it's going to benefit young families. I can tell you, uh, as I'm actually working on some of these projects, Calgary has it. Calgary already has any single family house. A lot of them are already allow you to build uh, duplexes, fourplexes, infill housing. 
yeah, uh, in in an area that is already, I would say, less land constrained than Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're much more open about their zoning over there. And I can tell you that it's a very, very popular housing uh, option for young mm-hmm. families. Because even even families in Calgary, for example, they go, well, I can get a 1950s bungalow for you know $700,000 in the inner city, but I'd rather pay $800,000 and get a brand new, basically duplex. Yeah, sure. Because it's brand new. I get all the modern finishings. And I don't have to worry about an old you know, eight, 70, yeah. 80 year old house. Well, on that note, I think that's one of my observations, not think one of my observations as well is that a lot of young people aren't prepared to do what at least my folks did, um, which was to buy an older rundown house and like literally be willing to live in that and maybe, maybe upgrade over the years, but you're kind of jumping from one sort of beaten up 40 50 year old home to the next and you kind of work your way till you know maybe your first home's 40 years old the second home's 20 years old your third home's 10 and then you know by the time you're in your 50s or 60s you're building new for the first time it seems like a lot of young people don't want to do that they want everything new right from the start and they have to i mean you've got to pay a premium for that it's like buying a new pair of shoes versus an old used pair of shoes do you have any observation or th- view on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. Like, just like with the clientele that we work with, you can tell like people just, I, I don't know if it's just changing the time, people are busy, um, it's a lot going on and and people just, I don't think it's like that trade, you know, it's, like, it's almost like the same reason why do people not go into trades anymore? Yeah. Because there's a shortage of trades, it's not like sexy, like nobody wants to be a plumber, an electrician anymore. Yeah. And so I feel like, and it's the same thing, like, I don't think people are equipped with the tools like, you know, maybe uh, our parents were growing up of going and fixing your old house. Yeah. It's now it's like you call the plumber when you have an issue, you call the electrician, you call yeah. people, to, you call the handyman to yeah. come do some. So yeah, the, the younger generation, I think is much more inclined to, to go into newer product. They want yeah. to set it and forget it. 10 year home warranty. Mm-hmm. Don't have to worry about it. Um, so yeah. But I mean, that's important and recognize that like, you know, when I hear people complain about why well, I can't afford to get in the real estate market, I'm like, well, what do you want to buy? Because like I, I know there's plenty of condos, for example, over in kind of like East Vancouver on the other side of like, you know, Canby Bridge that are smaller. They're 60-year-old buildings are kind of run down. You, you could afford to probably move into one of those places versus buying a brand new condo built in, you know, downtown Vancouver. I think it definitely, you, you can't sit here and you know i'm trying to justify vancouver prices obviously but i think at the same time you do have to put like a little bit into context like i had you know you chatted about it earlier about uh everybody you know wanting the white picket fence yeah. uh yeah it, uh, uh someone reached out a doctor let's put it that way a high income doctor um saying oh, i can't even vancouver is so ridiculous even i can't afford a detached house on the west side of vancouver and i said well yeah you and everybody else you're competing not with local incomes, you're competing with global money Yeah. to buy. You, you see, you're saying you want to buy the best piece of dirt in all of Vancouver on the West side. You want a detached house. Those are in finite supply. Right. Yeah. You know, so as a doctor, you might not be able to afford that on your salary, even though it's a good salary. Yeah. Uh, the reality is if you want your detached house, yeah, you might have to go to Port Moody. You might yeah. have to go to Coquitlam or, or, uh, you know, South Surrey. Yeah. Okay, Steve, I want to jump to home ownership and how rising interest rates obviously affect, you know, cost, the cost to purchase. One of the stats that uh, Statistics Canada came out with recently, which was amazing, is that 50% of Vancouver home, uh, Vancouver uh, owned households 
are mortgage free. And I can't remember if it was you on Twitter or somebody who posted this infographic that showed, especially in areas, wealthier areas like Westside Vancouver, it's upwards of like 70% of these homes have no mortgages. So in those circumstances, I mean, then clearly these people are not impacted by rising interest rates. I mean, at least in that context, it may be with their pensions or something, their investments. Um, do you think that having such a lot high ownership of uh, clear title homes is also impacting this market? I think it's definitely impacting some of the, like the new listing side of it. You know, again, the discussion around old people are going to be stressed and foreclosing and Again, if you, this is a staggering statistic. I mean, keep in mind that it only includes uh, primary residents. So I tend to find that, you know, while your primary resident might be free and clear, you're typically taking some leverage on an investment condo. And I think that's, if we're ever going to see um, a dumping of, of, of listings coming to market, I think you're going to see it first and foremost in the condo market. Okay. Because that's where the investors play. Yeah. Um, that's where the leverage is. And, and typically... And we, I've I've had these conversations this year over the last twelve months. Is a lot of investors are also inclined to go variable rate mortgages because it provides the liquidity. So you know, let's say you take on a variable rate mortgage, you're you hold this condo for three years, market goes up, you see it's a bull market, you're like, I'm going to dump this thing and make a quick couple hundred thousand bucks. I'm good. I'm out. Yeah. So you want you know you want to be able to break that mortgage pretty much at any time. So a yeah. lot of investors will go with variable mortgages. Uh, so what we've seen is rates going up, putting pressure on it, um, and because of government restrictions on on uh, how much you can raise rents, we're seeing the the pressure. We're actually seeing, I think, more investors right now actually cleaning up their balance sheet, not yeah. necessarily adding to the portfolio. So everybody was adding to the portfolio during the pandemic. Everybody's like, I got to get one one more condo, one more pre-sale, and now we're seeing, okay, I got three condos, let's sell one. Right. Let's let's clear up one because I've got three, you know, three variable rate mortgages, and uh, I went from positive cash flow three hundred dollars a month to all of a sudden I'm losing five hundred dollars a month, and I can't get rid of the tenant. Yeah. And I can't raise the rent more than two percent. So what yeah. do I do? And so these are really tough conversations. Yeah. Uh, because to in sell. Yeah. To sell. Yeah. Just sell it because I mean. That, I mean, yeah. Does that impact a, a price if someone's trying to sell a condo and they've got a renter in there who's knows all the rental rules and you know they're month to month and you well, it's, know it's tough. So I'll give you this example. It's like I, mean, I you, guess if you're a buyer, sorry, I was just say if you're if you're the buyer and you're buying it for your own principal principal residence, then you're okay. You just have to factor that in a two months. Exactly, rate. but you're shrinking your buyer pool. Yeah. Right. So now, so you go to right. mark. Let's say let's say you've got a one bedroom condo in. Uh, downtown Vancouver market rent is twenty four hundred dollars a month right now, and you've got a tenant in there because you put them in three four years ago, and yeah. you haven't raised the rents because you're a nice guy, yeah. and the rent is eighteen hundred dollars a month. Right, you've basically eliminated the investor pool completely because the investor. Why would they pay? Yeah. they'd have to get a deep discount on the price to offset the below market rent. Exactly, and there's no legal way. To get them out unless they agree to mutually end the tenant yeah. tenancy. And does the tenant want to mutually agree to end it knowing that the market rent is $600 a month higher? Yeah. So sure. so you tend to lose a lot of investors. So now your buyer pool shrinks and you have to basically hope to sell to an end user who's going to give notice to the tenant and legally get rid of them. Yeah. So that's the issue. You know, this this report I have here, this is uh, came out in January. I don't know if you ever read this. this is the uh, CMHC publishes it once a year. It's the Rental Market Report. 
Um, and so this one is for Vancouver. What's really interesting is uh, for Vancouver proper, purpose-built rental market. Now, this is as of the end of December of 2022. The vacancy rate for purpose-built rentals was 0.9%, like fake, effectively almost zero. Um, the average rent was just over $2,000 a month. And for condominium apartment rentals, the vacancy rate was 2.2%. And the average two-bedroom rental was uh, $2,500. It's amazing. But what the part that I found most fascinating about this was, was this statistic here. Asking rents for vacant units are now on average 43% higher than those paid for occupied units. 43%. So this BC NDP government who thinks they're doing everybody a favor by, or the renter, renters out there, by capping rental increases by 2% is actually skewing the market because basically you have this pool of active rental pool of, uh, of renters that aren't seeing the rents go up by more than 2%. But as soon as somebody leaves and that landlord goes to relist, they're having to think, okay, I got to jack up my rent, not to current market, but to offset the fact that I've got inflation at 7%, but I can only raise by two. So that's a, that's a drop of 5% per year. And if I think my average tenant's going to be in my place for say three years, that's an extra 15%. So if rents are for simple math, if rents are at, at $1,000, I should actually make my rent like 11, 11, 1,150 now, right? Or 1,500 now. Um, so it's amazing. Again, that stat is that the, asking rent for vacant units are on average 43% higher than those that are occupied. What are your thoughts on that one? I think that purpose-built rentals are still the best deal going for anyone in Vancouver that's a tenant because as soon as you get in there, you can't you you there's you cannot get kicked out. Right. You're basically the way the tenancy laws are written, unless you really screw something up, you're in there. Yeah. And and the the increase is you know if you're allowed to raise rents two percent uh, a year historically I mean they just don't keep up with the actual rate of inflation and so no. people aren't incentivized to leave their purpose built rentals and uh, so I still think it's the best deal going now what I will say is by doing that ironically while they are well intentioned trying to protect the tenants it's also ultimately throttling supply. If you're a developer that's saying, and why would you build? Why would you build? Why would you build a, a, a purpose a rent? What is it called? Purpose built rental. Purpose built rental. Like it's exactly. kind of crazy, actually. It's it is crazy. And and then so what's happening now is the BC government's coming out with these things. Like I read that they're they're going to offer loans to builders to build purpose rent build purpose built rental buildings. Um, that are really like, I think there's zero interest or something, as long as they keep them rented for five years sometimes. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I can get what into was, that. Yeah. Uh, what so, was that about? Okay, so that that one the BC government was was uh, talking about was um, basement suites. So they want to legalize basement suites in all single family detached houses. And so they'll say, hey, you have a basement, you have a, you have a home, you want to add a basement suite, uh, we will grant you up to $40,000 and and make it interest free and i think that they i believe don't call me on this i believe they wipe out half of it so you only have to pay back twenty thousand uh so long as you agree to rent out that basement suite below market that's what it was 
for five years. Yeah. Um, now again, I don't know what happens after five years because given the current guidelines, you can't just arbitrarily raise the rents and kick them out. Yeah. Um, now back to the purpose-built rental side. The one thing the Canadian federal government has done a good job through CMHC is their um, uh, CMHC has very attractive uh, rental financing for these developers. They're basically financing the construction now, um, insanely cheap interest rates, and they're allowing developers to do forty up to forty year amortizations at very favorable interest rates, below mm. market interest rates. Wow! So this is actually the only reason why you're seeing, I would say, a boom in rental development in in vancouver and in other but that's parts. just taxpayers now carrying that bill essentially yes right yeah. i mean it's the federal government it's not their money it's us as canadian taxpayers yeah so if we're going to start floating that that's just going to add to our tax burden correct yeah. yeah yeah so but i mean that's that's the only way to make these rental projects feasible and that's the only incentive that these developers have because they're saying well if i can only raise rents two percent and my performer doesn't check out the only way they're able to do that is say your construction financing is dirt cheap next to yeah. nil and we're going to give you extremely favorable financing. Yeah. Well, there's another effect that happens when you have r strict rental controls like we're now seeing in BC uh, that they have in places like New York City, which is uh, buildings and units that just become very decrepit. I mean, if, a la if I'm a landlord and, in and inflation is again at 7% and I'm uh, I can only increase my rent by two. So I'm losing 5% a year in real dollars on my rental pool, um, on my rental income. Then why would I bother upgrading the unit? Correct. Like, like I might as well just let the roof kind of go. I'll let the paint go. I'll, the appliances, we'll let them just go. Yeah. So our uh, our former mayor, yeah. uh, Kennedy Stewart, who's obviously now not in power, he had proposed in the previous election where he got voted out, he was proposing um, rent freeze uh, turnovers on rents. So basically saying, hey, you had so they want, basically you had a tenant in there. Uh, market rent is again twenty four hundred dollars. You had them in there at eighteen hundred dollars. They left because they got a new job in Toronto. You have to refill that vacancy at eighteen hundred dollars. Right. You can't you can't go back to market and put it at twenty four. Yeah. And so under that circumstance, who's going to? I mean, that's absolutely nuts. I mean, that's yeah. that. Gene Swanson was trying to do that too, and she's yeah. gone as well now. But uh, I think the city of Burnaby yeah. had also ch chat talked about something they, along those yeah. lines too. So, but it's it's. I mean, it's concerning that the conversation's even there. Yeah. Um, but this is kind of where a lot of our politics, I think, are ultimately creating a lot of the problems that we have today or policy decisions that we made 5, 10, 15 years ago yeah. and continue to make. I mean, I like what David Eby's doing with respect to kind of bringing down the hammer on these municipal governments, because to me, that's who's failed more than anybody else. In my opinion, the federal government really has no play on residential real estate. Provincially, they can if they want to implement these kind of goofy taxes and rules. But ultimately, it comes down to like the municipal government. And when I've also talked to developers, um, they've told me over the last couple of years that they're getting out of Vancouver. Not only is the cost of dirt so expensive and the approval process is so long and it's just so uncertain, like there's so much risk because it takes so long when they can go to North Vancouver, right? Or they can go to Burnaby or they can go to places like Edmonton, which is like really fast turnover. And as uh, Chip Wilson, when he's on my show, I love the saying he had, which is capital goes to the place it's most loved, right? And if capital is not very loved here in Vancouver, why not send it down to Seattle or send it over to Edmonton? And it does move that quickly. Yeah, I think there's a definitely a misconception, you know, around 
I mean, developers have always been villainized um, throughout time, but I think there's a misperception that they make tons and tons of money. Like the profit margins are mad. The profit margins are actually razor thin. Yeah. In Vegas. You know, yes, they're making lots of money because when you when you know you take fees off of a hundred million dollar project, obviously it you know it starts to pencil pretty good. But the profit margins are actually pretty tight. So when you start seeing cost of construction going up and then your cost of financing going up and you pre-sold the building 18 months ago at lower pricing, there's a lot of developments out there that uh, aren't going to make it or aren't going to make any money. Yeah, absolutely. Despite five, six years of blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's important to kind of contextualize that. But yeah. they, they get vilified, and, and obviously so does the real estate industry. And yeah. People are looking for who to, who to take it out on. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I look at the builders and think to myself, well, like, let's let's create a market environment that supports them because I do believe this is a supply issue. And instead of capping, you know, rental increases, uh, instead of making it an onerous process to get approvals to build, get out of the way, let these people build, um, let them raise their rents as much as they want to. What'll end up happening is there'll be a flood of capital coming into the market and it'll take care of itself. Like, Prices will and rents will go down because so many people will come going, oh, this is amazing. I can build in Vancouver. I can build quickly. I can raise my rents to whatever. I mean, temporarily or short term, it'll be painful for those who are living in a rental environment where they all of a sudden got to start raising the rents by 7 or 8% a year or 10% or whatever the person wants to raise them by. But if you also allow a flood of new supply, then it becomes a real free market. And as a renter, you can go, you know what? Sorry, pal. You've raised your rent too much. I got three other places I can choose from here. You can only raise your rent so much as like the incomes can actually qualify to to to, to support, support them, right? Yeah. So it's like developer landlords don't just arbitrarily say, "Oh, I'm going to rent it out for you know this two bedroom for four thousand dollars a month." Like someone's yeah, salary right. actually has to ultimately support yeah. that. So if you raise the rent too high, the tenant will just leave. Yeah, and someone else will have to come in and fill that vacancy. So yeah, I think if you let the free market take care of itself, yeah, I think ironically when you study a lot of these other like housing markets, it's the it's the markets that have the most sort of regulations and and restrictions yeah. on rents and that are end up being actually the, the least affordable and have the most sort of issues. Yeah, absolutely, you're absolutely true. It's like the opposite effect of what they're trying to achieve. Can you explain for our listeners what is a pre-sale and uh, talk about the risks associated with pre-sales. What does the pre-sale market look like now in 2023? Um, there was a lot of, I know, funky activity going on with pre-sales. If we go back before this foreign homebuyer tax, where there was a lot of foreign money supposedly was coming in on these pre-sale uh, sales. Like if we go back to like 2012, 13, 14, 15. So can you talk about, first of all, explain to the listeners like what is a pre-sale and, and what's your view on it today? Yeah, um, pre-sales. I mean, it's essentially a futures contract, right? So you're you're buying a contract which gives you the rights to that unit. So when it is 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 completed three four years from now, uh, you are able to close on it. So you basically you lock into your contract purchase price today. And so the benefit is, over the last you know ten fifteen twenty years, pre-sales have done really well because you've had a market that's continued to go up. So you 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 buy a pre-sale and say, oh, I'm buying this one bedroom for six hundred thousand dollars today. But the market goes up eight percent a year, which is historically what it's done. Amazing. And in four years' time, you know that six hundred thousand is really worth seven hundred and fifty thousand or whatever, and you flip it for you know a tiny profit, uh, a tidy profit, and that's um, that's been the game. And I think now we're at the point where 
the math is just really hard to to sort of rationalize. Um, so, for example, if you look in downtown Vancouver here, you haven't seen a developer launch a new presale in the last five years below seventeen, eighteen hundred bucks a square foot. Wow. Um, and you can buy, but you can buy resale. You can buy a five-year-old resale building of similar quality, similar type for about thirteen hundred a square foot, thirteen fifty a square foot. So you're paying a huge premium today to lock in. So I don't know necessarily what the upside is. Now at the top of the market here, we had uh, the highest ever price per square foot was the Butterfly Project at three thousand dollars a square foot, and that still is that's amazing. That's West Bank, right? West that's Bank. up on. Um, Berard and Nelson. Nelson. Yeah. 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 And that, you know, is going to come for completion realistically probably in 18 months. Yeah. And I don't know, like 3,000 a square foot. What does that appraise at? I don't know. <laughs> what's the bank going to, what's the bank willing to lend on that property? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think people, when they sign into those contracts, mortgage rates were about two and a half percent. Well, now they're at five. Again, I don't know where they're going to be in 18 months, but who's going to be able to qualify if they're at five? So you, you think we'll see some people in those pre-sales that have to just basically walk from that property and whatever deposit they put down, they're just going to have to just walk away from? I think if you look at a lot of these projects, some of them, you know, some of the more expensive ones downtown, you can see on the MLS, there's 20, 25, 30, 35 assignments on the market currently for sale. Is it really? An assignment basically is someone saying, hey, I, someone buy the contract. Yeah. Um. I I, I want to sell. I want out of this contract. Yeah. And so yeah, I think there's a big question mark around who is going to be able to complete on these yeah. units. And you you know you can I think there's a lot of people that have done well in pre-sales, and you have to be very selective on on projects. Some will continue to do well. Um. But I I think I don't know. I I personally believe that the golden era of printing money on pre-sales is. I I think it's very much up in the air. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you one more example. Um, I had a friend of mine, let's put it that way. He, uh, you know, he says uh, in Brentwood, they've got the towers there. So he says, you know, I've got the friends and family discount. I work for the for the developer. They can offer it to me for $1,600 a square foot. And I said, well, that's pretty expensive. But he goes, well, you know, Tower One when they sold it seven years ago was about six, seven hundred dollars a square foot. So if it can, you know, Keep if Tower One with... could do that, why can't Tower Four or Tower Five? Yeah. And I said, well, yeah, yeah. I suppose if you continue to extrapolate, yeah. but at some point that's sixteen hundred dollars a square foot. Time you tack on GST, property transfer tax, then you resell it with your realtor fees. You need about seventeen fifty, eighteen hundred dollars a square foot to exit this thing. Yeah. So at some point the math. I think we'll start to break down. Yeah. But uh, it's been- And that was Tower 4? Yeah, Tower 4, Tower 5. Yeah. I can't remember what, what other tower. The other on. part of the answer is, and there's already, there's also that, the first one was Tower 1. There were no other towers around. Yeah. There's three others to choose from. Yeah. So it's, uh, and again, if you look at the resale prices, they're about 1,200, 1,250 a square foot. Right. So it's a big, it's a big premium. Yeah. You got to hope for a lot of things to go right. Yeah. Let's go back to the mortgage because mortgage data, because as we talked about earlier, um, there's a lot of homes in Metro Vancouver, um, especially in some of the wealthier neighborhoods where there are no mortgages. But on the flip side, for those who do have mortgages, the latest data from CIBC states that uh, 20% of mortgages in Canada are currently not even covering their interest costs. So it seems almost like we have like these two like 
extremes. Like on one extreme, you have people who literally have, you know, they have no debt at all, at least in the primary residence, and they've benefited from this amazing 20-year bull run. And on the other end, you've got people who got into the market more recently in the last five years or so, 10 years, probably five years, and they got into these, you know, low rate mortgages at the time, qualification was easier. And then they, and a lot of them are maybe in variable rate. And now like 20% of mortgages in Canada cannot cover their interest costs. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a real concern. I think the variable product in Canada, the way it was designed for most of these big banks, I think it's coming home to roost that maybe it wasn't a great product. Because I don't think yeah. a lot of people really understood it. To, to be honest, if you chatted with a lot of the brokers as these rates were going up, they they didn't really know how the banks were going to deal with it. They didn't know how the trigger rate wasn't really, it was like a, a fine print item on your mortgage uh, paperwork. Yeah. Nobody really understood it. And so nobody expected rates to go up again, 400 basis points in 12 months. It yeah. was unfathomable. Yeah. Um, I think what we're seeing now is that banks are essentially extending and pretending. They're basically allowing these people to, a lot of, in a lot of cases, add the interest to the outstanding balance. So the balance is actually growing on the mortgage. Yeah. So the question mark is really what's going to happen when they come up for renewal. Yeah. Um, tip, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take the remaining term. So if you sign on a 30-year amortization and you come up in year f after five years to renew, you're supposed to fit the remaining balance under 25 years, which it means you're going to have one large balloon payment. So that's going to be a real concern for a lot of households. Now, I think what's going to happen or what's probably going to have to happen is the financial regulator, OSFI, is going to have to figure out a way to to juggle this. And I think what's going to happen is realistically working with borrowers uh, on an individual basis or perhaps through policy change to allow people to re-extend their amortization, amortization without having to re-qualify. Right. Because if you want to yeah. actually extend your amortization, you're supposed to re-qualify. Yeah. Which and, means, the, and those tests are there. It's, it's You got to get stress tested. Yeah. And just to make sure it's clear. So that's the stress test is 2% above current your, your contract rate. Con so contract if you say I'm going to renew next year at four and a half percent mortgage rate, you got to stress test at six and a half. Six and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So of course that was all, all those, that policy was designed back when interest rates were at like one. Yeah. 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 You know, the other factor that these banks are having to face is the, is that there are, so you've got two types of mortgage borrowers, right? There's the variable rate mortgage borrowers. And then even within that, as I understand it works is You've got the main banks and when rates kept going up, their payments didn't change. They're just the allocation of how much went towards principal and interest changed. So more, more towards interest, less towards principal versus the, what they call B lenders, where those people had to immediately saw increases. A couple of guys I play hockey with, one guy in particular, he's like, oh my God, Andrew, every time they raise interest rates my uh, by you know half a percent, my mortgage payments go up by 500 bucks every two weeks, right? Now, the other pool, though, which is where historically the majority of mortgage borrowers have been for since you and I were before we were born, is the five-year fixed-term market. Now, every single month right now in 2023, there's people who locked into a five-year mortgage in 2017 at like, what, two, three, maybe three percent that, at that time? Yeah, you'd be 2018 coming up for renewals. So 2018, sorry. 2018, you you had rates at about three and a half. Three and a half. Yeah. And now they're having to increase. They have to renew so about five. Five. Yeah. And then wait until a year from now, assuming rates stay flat. I don't think they're going down. I think they'll probably go higher. 
because uh, of inflation. And so I think we're just in a pause right now. And so you go a year from now into 2024, 2025, and in 2025, people who qualified for a mortgage at literally like 2%, and now they're having to remove it, renew at five, like that's a very painful move. Yeah, it's gonna be a painful move. I think there was some uh, some commentary out from some of the banks yesterday saying uh, they were seeing their sort of average renewal, uh, average household was seeing about a 300 to $500 increase. Yeah, on their monthly incredible. payment. So perhaps manageable. I mean, I think that 300 to 500 is across the nation, right? So imagine someone in Vancouver or Toronto where house prices are higher, yeah. mortgages are higher, that, uh, that that payment is probably more than three to 500. Yeah. Um, it, could be, it could be crippling for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately going to pull from discretionary spending elsewhere, right? People will, yeah. people will scrap together as, as much as they can to pay their mortgage first. And, oh, of course right. they always do. I mean, yeah. no one wants to give up their home, right? I mean, this friend of mine I play hockey with, um, you know, he has a truck that he's got a loan on. He's got some uh, some snowmobiles he's got loans on. So he's getting rid of those. Maybe going to get even a roommate before he goes to sell his place. So, um, And that's, that's why I was saying to you, like, you know, the beginning earlier in the show, which was like what the conversations we're having with people, like a lot of these investors and stuff, that have you know multiple units. It's more about right now about cleaning up the balance sheet. Yeah, it's not about adding to the portfolio, and that's why we're not still seeing like you know some of these like glitzy high rise pre sales. Like those are still they're still a tougher sell right now. Yeah, because they are typically sold to investors, investors. and the investors are still a little bit tepid. Right, the numbers don't quite pencil, um, and 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 people are trying to clean up their balance sheet, not necessarily add to the portfolio. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so again, coming full circle, the demand that you're seeing today, the multiple offers and, and whatnot that you're reading about in the media headlines is predominantly catered in the end user market, entry level, single family houses, one, right. one bedrooms for first time home buyers. Steve, with respect to these banks, mortgages, one of the things I was bringing up on my phone here, um, is, is their share prices. And I, I won't digress too much, but I think this, you might find this interesting. So General rule of thumb, and this is my world, is that when interest rates go up, banks make more money. I mean, it's it's historically been a great investment play is to put your money into bank stocks when you're in a rising rate environment. And the simple reason is because how do banks make money? Well, uh, if you're a depositor and you've got a bunch of your rich guy with a bunch of money, and I'm this you know guy who's trying to I'm borrowing because I need to buy a house. Well, the banks will take your money and they'll pay you a rate of interest down here. And then they'll lend it to me and charge me a rate of interest up here. And that's the spread. And historically, the big Canadian banks, they're looking to make about 2.3%, 230 basis points spread between those two. And they have to obviously offset their books. So if they're, if they're published, if they're uh, issuing a lot of five-year mortgages, that's why the five-year fixed-term GIC is the most popular bank product around and has been forever because they have to match their liabilities with their, with their assets. And for banks, their assets are their loans. When interest rates go up, they can immediately start, for most cases, start charging their borrowers a higher rate right away. But there's a lag for the depositors. There's still a lot of depositors today, uh, you know, in my business that we I run here every day where there's, there's clients of ours that we talk to, their banks are still paying them near zero when they should be getting close to 4 to 5% of their cash. So their spread widens. And so as a result, spread widens, bigger bigger profit margins, share price reflects that. Now, here's the perplexing thing. If you look at the one-year share price of Canada's two biggest banks, and a lot of people talk about the big five banks or big six, 
Um, and they go in order of this. So it's Royals number one, then TD, the Bank of Nova Scotia, BMO, CIBC, and the National Bank. And people say, oh, it's a big six. And they think it's like they're all the same, but they're not. Like if you actually took the bottom three, being National Bank, Bank of Montreal, and, C and CIBC, those three bottom ones, if they all merged together, they would still, as a merged bank, still be smaller than TD or Royal. So TD and Royal are like monster banks. And so I always like to look at their share prices because they tend to be less affected by some anomaly in the market. And I don't like looking at BNS, even though they're number three. BNS has been getting crushed. I mean, if I look at their one-year share price, uh, they're down 23% in the last 12 months. But they also have a huge amount of exposure to Latin America, right? And that's a whole emerging market that no, none of the other big six banks have exposure to. But if I look at Royal Bank, which is like the sort of premium name out there, right? Their share price is down 5% in the last year. And if I look at TD, who's actually bigger than Royal in assets, just slightly smaller in market cap, they're down 19.6%. They're down 20% in the last year. Okay. I talked about Bank of Nova Scotia already. If you look at Bank of Montreal, just to gain put some perspective, they're down 18% in the last year. And if you take a look at CIBC in the last year, they're down 22%. So in a rising environment, rate environment, where bank share prices should be doing well, they're doing the exact opposite. So you ask yourself, why? Well, in my opinion, it's credit risk, right? That's what, it's, that's what it is. And when I talk to the people that I know in the banking world, that's what they all talk about. It goes back to this question of like 20% of mortgages in Canada can't even cover the cost of interest. So what's going to be really interesting going into the remainder part of 2023 Right now, the financial markets are implying no more rate increases by the Bank of Canada, but no, no cuts as well. And I think what's going to be fascinating to watch is what happens is inflate, if inflation stays high, the Bank of Canada will be forced to raise interest rates. Otherwise, we get what happened in the 1970s and early 1980s. And that's going to be a real problem. Now, there's been a lot of stress on, on mortgage borrowers right now while they're gainfully employed. We also have historically the lowest unemployment rate ever seen in the country. If we start to get unemployment happening to tick up, it doesn't matter whether your payments went from $1,200 to $1,500. If you're not gainfully employed, you can't make either of those payments. Do you have any thoughts on where we may be going if we start to see rising unemployment? I mean, I think that's like the big, the big X factor. Okay. Right. The wild yeah. card. Yeah. Um, yeah, you talk about you talk to anyone in the in the in the banking you know industry that's that's connected to these big banks, and that's what they'll tell you. That's like what they're most concerned about is yeah. is rising unemployment. Um, it becomes hard to service a mortgage. Um, so right now, I think people are getting like essentially the extend and pretend with these. Hey, don't worry about paying all your interest. We'll just tack it to the balance and we'll figure it out in five years. Yeah, um, similar to similar to the. Uh, mortgage deferrals during the onset of the pandemic. Don't pay right. your mortgage for six months. Yeah, and and thankfully, you know, we we I mean, thankfully and unthankfully, we printed so much money and got everyone back to work that it, it kind of papered over the issue. I think all it did is kick the can down the street. To be honest with you, I don't actually think it solved any problems. We're seeing the obviously the ramifications of those policies now through through inflation and through rising interest rates. Yeah, right. So, absolutely. I think the unemployment is like getting, having been diagnosed with cancer instead of treating it hard and fast, cut deep and cut hard and make it painful for everybody right at the beginning. You load the patient up with a bunch of like pain medication to make them feel like they don't have cancer, but they have cancer and you should cut it out.
but we're not there now anyway. So they, yeah, they, I, they, I mean, I totally agree. I yeah. think that, uh, so that, that is like the X factor, um, is basically like, and, and I know this is kind of the ongoing dialogue in, in financial markets, right? Is like, is it, is it, it went soft landing? Is it hard landing? Is it, right. now people are saying no landing at one point, which is kind of the fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where yeah. do you think we're going then? It's, 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 oh. it's April of 2023. We're filming right now. Uh, Interest rates, I think everybody's buying in the idea the interest rates for the calendar year will will just stay flat, not go down, not go up. You've mentioned this whole maybe move back towards a, a, a just a, a shift back to something normal for the, the uh, listings, that there's not a lot of inventory. But where do you think we're going to go? What do you think is going to happen? I think it would be a fairy tale if, if you know, highly levered Canadian households, you know, we just printed a whole bunch of money, ran massive deficits, dropped rates to zero, papered over everything, and we got unscathed with an eight-month bear market in housing. And it was right. b- back to the races. To me, that's a fairy tale. It, it, could it happen? I suppose. I think it's a, it still feels like a low probability event. I think in the very near term, the micro is going to play out, which is there's no inventory. And okay. so you can't have price corrections without inventory. The X factor is going to be unemployment. Yeah. And I think if we get, uh, you know, a deeper recession and more unemployment, then I think that this this bear market is 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 definitely not over. Yeah. So it's really going to come down to that is is how hard is the landing. And, and I think that's, that's really going to play out in the macro, which is always hard to predict, but you know, what's happening with these US banks, the credit risk, 20% mortgage deferrals here and can or mortgage, uh, you know, outstanding interest payments, yeah, stuff of that nature. So I think there's, I still think, and we tell all our clients, it's like, there's still risk out there. Yeah. You know, whatever you're buying, you know, you, you should, you'd be planning to buy something with an outlook of eight to 10 years. Yeah. Not, hey, I'm going to- That's really good advice. Yeah. Not like go, go buy something you're going to live in and enjoy. Yeah. Because I don't know, like if you try to exit this thing in 12 months, 18 months, 36 months, I don't know where the market could be. I think that we're in, I think we're in a lot of volatility right now. Yeah. I think you can see that obviously in, in, in the bond market. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing it, you know, you chatted earlier about mortgage rates and, and what the banks are doing on their spreads. Yeah. I can tell you in the mortgage market, if you look at the Canada five year bond right now, today it's at about to, uh, what is it at? 2.8? Yeah. 2.8%. Yeah. Um, that is indicative of a mortgage rate that should be low fours, very low fours. And right now we're still got most banks at four, nine. Yeah. Four, eight, four, nine, five. Yeah. And some of these banks aren't even competitive. Right. Uh, so I can tell you Scotiabank is trading mortgages 30, 40, 50 basis points above all their peers. Wow. And they were probably one, I would say, in my opinion, the one of the more aggressive lenders during the pandemic. Okay. Especially to the investor pool. Yeah. Um, and so they've completely pulled back seemingly from from the mortgage market. So I still think there's a there's a bit of a risk off yeah. from the bank's perspective. Yeah. Um, they're not they're not well, competing on rates right now. They're well, saying, that's the bank's telling you something, right? Yeah. Like they're telling you that we're not betting that rates are gonna go lower here or stay low. So during the pandemic, right, you'd go, you'd go apply, you know, you're going to go buy a house, you talk to three mortgage brokers, they get you one rate at RBC, one at uh, BMO and one at TD. And all three of them are going to compete on rate. They're saying, well, oh, BMO gave you, you know, 2.1, we can give you 1.9. Right. And, and everybody was competing. And today it's like, oh, you got you know, you got 4.8 at TD, go, go, go with TD then. Right. We're good. Yeah. Our <laughs> rate's five. Yeah. 
Uh, so they're not really interested in competing, which I think is a little bit telling. And, yeah. and like I said, you know, given where the five-year bond yield is, which typically prices these mortgages, um, banks clearly aren't passing on those quote-unquote savings uh, to to their clients right yeah. now on the mortgage side. Yeah, I agree. This graph here I have, Steve, is the latest from, uh, it's up to the end of March, and it's the uh, Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver's uh, price chart that goes all the way back to 1977. Um, I should have pulled this for the early 80s just to show how bad this was from the peak in 1980, like the beginning of 81 till the, it kind of, it didn't actually recover for like almost a decade. Um, I mean, it doesn't look like on this graph, it doesn't look like much of a, a, a drop. That's just because the reference price isn't based on today's dollars. But when I look at the tail end of that graph there, when I look at that as a guy who works in the financial markets and looks at charts all the time, to me, this is what we call a, a, a dead cat bounce. Right? Yeah. This is like, this is like just a, oh, everybody's excited. The price is going back up. And then all of a sudden, boom, right? It's yeah. A dead and cat it- and just bounced off the ground. That's all it is. And it could be like 2017, right? I mean, 20, so 2015 into 16, blow off top. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then we came back in spring of 17 and the market picked up again. And people said, oh, people digested the foreign buyer tax. It's, it's, see, it didn't really work, didn't do, do a whole lot. And then again, we kind of rolled over later on in 2017 into the back half of 18. And we only picked up, we picked up ironically at the early onset of 2019 when the Fed started cutting rates again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of to my earlier point about pre-sales, right? I mean, you go back to the 1990s in Vancouver, for example, you had basically 10 years of no price growth. So, I mean, that's always a possibility. I'm not saying that's my base case, but it's something to consider if you're a pre-sale investor and whatnot is like to, to extrapolate growth every year. Uh, it's possible that we go through a period of very low to no growth. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny is run those charts. I know you're a monetarist. Yeah. Um, run those, uh, run Vancouver real estate prices priced in gold. In gold, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're actually is, they're down. They're down. Yeah, they're they're flat. They basically peaked, I think, in like '06 or something, and they're actually <laughs> down. But I mean, it's it's a funny exercise because yeah. I think it kind of paints a picture of you know life. Yeah. And markets. Yeah. Well, that's that. Yeah, I'll have to run that. I can run against Bitcoin as well. Um, Let's uh, talk for a moment as we start to wrap this up about housing policy. I had the pleasure of having uh, Brendan and Trevor Coote, the CEO for BCREA, the BC Real Estate Association, who represent realtors like yourself across the province. And when they were in here, um, I guess probably about six months ago now, maybe, uh, I asked them about policy, you know, federal, provincial, municipal policies, any that you like, any that you don't like, and they were pretty candid about it. So I just want to ask you the same question, Steve. Like, and obviously, David Eby's been coming out with a lot of new concepts and ideas and policies. Um, are there any that you've seen recently? Any that you uh, that that you like, that you don't like? Are there policies you've heard about in other jurisdictions that we don't have here in BC or Vancouver um, that you think government is doing a good job with, or could, or is getting, are they getting in the way of of having a more healthy real estate market? I think that, well, I think the rent cap stuff in, in, in BC, I don't think we chatted about it. I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, yeah. I think it actually, like I said, I think it discourages supply. Talk to a developer, try to run the numbers and your costs are going up seven, eight, nine, ten 10% a year and you can only raise rents 2%. You're not going to want to build and invest in more rental housing. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, that's a bad policy. 
Uh, I think the good policy, David Eby's, I think, uh, rezoning single family uh, to allow multifamily, I think, is 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 going to play out, I think, really well. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think the stress test was actually a good policy at the time when we, you know, when central banks were leaving rates at zero for a prolonged period of time. Um, I, I think it was smart policy and it was the policy people get confused with. It. I think the policy was actually designed to slow credit growth. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily to like, oh, we're so worried about these, these borrowers. It was really, I think, to slow the pace of price appreciation and slow credit growth in the system. Um, and so I think that was good policy at the time. The problem is with the stress test is- Do you still support it today though? Is such higher interest rate, higher interest I think rates? you can make an argument that it it should probably be amended at this point. Yeah, um, it kind even, of served its purpose, but- Yeah, even if you dropped it from two to one, like I think it should be like pro-cyclical, right? Yeah. Um, and so- yeah, I think that's one. The problem with the stress test is basically what what ended up happening was it was kind of like a snapshot in time. So they would the problem was is basically you've got you know little Joe who's the first time home buyer, but he requires mom to co-sign in the loan. So you're not really stress testing Joe. You're stress testing Joe's mom. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you know, and is she really going to step up to the plate if if he starts missing his mortgage payments? So I think that was the problem with the stress test and what, how people were getting around. It was basically everyone everyone then had to get a co-signer right. onto the mortgage. Yeah. Which it's, again, we'll see if that becomes an issue down the road. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, thought on immigration? Um, do you think this is going to be a big factor? Because uh, the Trudeau government historically has been very pro-immigration. We have a major labor shortage right now. So, you know, we talked about rising unemployment but that's not where we are that's not a reality right now in fact we have like major like uh labor pool shortage going on and now that the pandemic's over because we had two years of virtually no immigration we're expected to start to see you know roughly about a million people uh come into um into our country in the coming year two years what are your thoughts on immigration i think that it's worth having a healthy debate around. Yeah. I think that, you know, we've just had the re- most recent stats, which was a million people brought into the country in 2022. Uh, now, keep in mind, the federal government targets uh, permanent residency. Yeah. So they have, I think their target was 460,000 people last year, or maybe it was 430, one of the two numbers. Uh, but they don't really, they don't really uh, have a target for temporary workers and, and temporary uh, foreign students. And right. so basically you just end up opening the floodgates and they say, well, we're targeting these people, but oops, a million people came in and there's no, there's no housing plan. There's no plan. Cause as you know, getting projects and construction approved is basically done at the municipal level. And so you don't have these three levels of government communicating. The federal government just says, listen, we're going to open up the floodgates here. We're going to let all these people in and you guys figure out the housing situation. Yeah. And so we're already having issues, I think, housing our existing citizens here. We ha- we do have a housing crisis. And so I think we, I think it's a wise or a healthy debate to say, is the appropriate number of permanent residents, should it be f- 460,000 a year? Or maybe it should be 360,000 a year for the next couple of years until we get our feet underneath us and we can figure out the housing situation or, you know, you can throw in a- any other infrastructure, you know, healthcare, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that's that's a healthy debate. The problem is, again, is you have three levels of very large bureaucratic governments, and a lot of them don't really 
I don't think have a plan in place. It's just yeah. everyone's pointing the fingers and saying, well, you, you've, it's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> and so nothing really is getting done. And this is the issue. And I think when you, when you pull in a million people into the country, uh, I think it papers over a lot of issues. Yeah. My favorite exercise is just to look at real, real GDP per capita, which has actually been declining since 2017. Has it been? So yeah. I, don't, I don't, you could argue that I guess the Canada as, as a population hasn't necessarily improved, but right. our GDP has gone up. Yeah. In, in total terms. Total terms. But not yeah. on a per capita basis. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Steve, you run a podcast, you've got a YouTube channel, and you've got lots of uh, activity on social media. If people want to follow you, um, what's the name of your uh, uh, podcast? Yeah, podcast is uh, The Looney Hour. Uh, okay. So it's myself and two other hosts, and uh, yeah. we're starting to get some guests on there. So uh, yeah. yeah, we're uh, just trying to have a basically a conversation like this. Which Is, is, just, it, is it an audio podcast? Audio podcast. We, yeah. th- we have it up on YouTube as well. So yeah. we do throw both versions, but it's basically just trying to have a dialogue around uh, Canada, the economy, macroeconomics, and financial markets, and basically trying to dissect how it impacts Canadians. Yeah. So I'll usually go on and chat about housing and my other guests will chat about various markets and yeah. currencies. And yeah, we're just trying to sort of enhance the the conversation. Okay, good. And you've also got a, a, a report that you publish, a newsletter of some type? Yeah. So we do, uh, the Sretsky Report is a monthly newsletter. Uh, it goes out to a whole array of people. We've got policymakers on there, developers. We've got just retail people, uh, but it's completely free. It's on Substack. Uh, so if you search Steve Soretsky Substack, it will show up. And it's predominantly about uh, Canadian housing. Okay. And then social media, uh, you're on Instagram, LinkedIn. Twitter. Facebook, very active Twitter. on Twitter. Yeah, yeah you've got a, f- a lot of followers on Twitter. That's for, a, full, for, full, a full-time job. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I enjoy What's the What's your debate. handle on there? Just, it's just uh, at Steve Soretsky. At Steve yeah, Keep Suretsky. it simple. Yeah, keep it yeah. simple. Yeah. Well, this has been really great, Steve, coming onto our show today. Uh, definitely would love to have you back another time to kind of re- like kind of revisit, you know, where things did end up going from where we are here in uh, early April of 2023. Um, and keep going, man. I, I love the material you put out. I follow it ad, uh, actively, and uh, I really appreciate coming on to Coastal Front today, Steve Soretsky. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. Yeah.